And I remember thinking on those first few rides, I'm like, there's no, like 4,000 4, kilometers. Like, what are you thinking? Like, you cannot do this. You could barely yeah. get through 30. Um, and that's when I just kind of decided to lean in and make it an experiment. And like, what can you achieve if you go tunnel vision on something? Um, mm -hmm. Because I learned very quickly that running fit does not translate to bike fit. So I had no choice but to put my money where my mouth was and, and try to skill up. This is Dawn, a very unlikely ultra cyclist, and you're listening to the Just Bikes podcast from The Metal Set. Stay tuned as I'll be chatting with friends and fellow cyclists about all things bikes. That's ultra, adventure, gravel, mountain biking, and all sorts of type two fun. If you know anything about ultra cycling, you probably know of the transcontinental, it is an annual self-supported ultra cycling race that, as the name suggests, spans almost the entire European continent. Started in 2013 by the late Mike Hall, the race is widely considered one of the toughest on the planet, testing riders' fitness, mental strength, planning, problem solving, and ability to endure as they ride 4,000 kilometers with approximately 40,000 meters of climbing through all sorts of countries, conditions, and challenges. So what type of person decides that they're going to take on one of the world's toughest ultra cycling races without being a cyclist? Well, meet our guest for episode one of the Just Bikes podcast, Dr. Sarah Ruggins, who took part in the last edition of the TCR as it is known. No, she's not that kind of doctor, but she is someone who employed clinical precision in her planning to do this race, a race she signed up for without a bike, without a cycling coach and pairing with someone she barely knew. If you know me, you'll know that I did something similar back in 2019, but the race was only 1000 kilometers in one country, Oman, which I was more or less familiar with. Given my own story, I was super keen to chat with Sarah and super excited to find out that she was also from Eastern Canada, like me. Take what you will from that piece of info. In my chat with Sarah, we learned that her story goes way beyond the TCR and way back into childhood when she was an elite runner with a bright future ahead of her. Without giving too much away, in my chat with her, you'll learn more about Sarah's strength and ability to endure and how it didn't start with the TCR. We talk through the wild twists and turns that led to her signing up for the TCR, her training for the race, the dynamics of riding in a pair with someone you don't know, and lessons she learned from the road. We talk about safety on long-distance ultracycling races, getting more women to the start line, and also what's next for Sarah in her ultracycling endeavors. I've put a lot of info in the show notes about the TCR, Sarah, and some links to earlier podcasts that may be useful to you too if you wanted to take a crazy leap of faith into the world of ultracycling. Before we get started as well, you should also know that at the time of release, TCR applications are open. Just some information for you to do what you will with that. Without a moment's more, here's Dr. Sarah Ruggins on the TCR and True Endurance. Enjoy. So hi, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thanks, Don. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm great. Excellent. 
So I first want to kind of set the scene on how I found out about you. <laughs> I was following the Transcontinental this year and photographer James Robertson on Instagram. He does these beautiful images every single year of the race. And he was doing uh, a photo shoot, I think, at CP3 on the TCR. Right. And I saw this photo of you and just scrolling along. I was like, oh, this looks like a campaign for a new cycling brand. Like, really, <laughs> That's really That's very hip. generous of you. <laughs> <laughs> Chic photo of you. You had this beaming smile on your face. And... Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you. When I realized it was from the TCR, I always feel like when I'm on an ultra cycling race, I'm a bit like a wildling, like I'm kind of outside the realm of civilization. <laughs> but this photo was beautiful. And then I looked at the caption and it said, meet Sarah. She didn't own a bike six months before the race. And I was like, I have to speak to this woman. <laughs> Do you remember that photo being taken? I do actually remember that photo being taken. It was, yeah, it was the, the control point three in Burrell. Immediately prior to arriving there, I was fighting for my life for about 100 miles through these horrific gravel roads. And I think I had, I wasn't feeling great. It was probably the lowest day in the race thus far emotionally and, and physically. But I think I had that smile on my face just because I made it. I didn't think I was going to make it, if I'm being honest. And we made it with time to spare. So I think it was it was two things. One, that I was able to persist and make it to Burrell. And two, the fact that I was still alive. I think I was just really grateful for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that. So looking at that photo and understanding that you had just bought a bike, just six months before the transcontinental. And just a reminder for everyone that was 4,000 kilometers. It is like the pinnacle of ultra cycling, self-supported ultra cycling races. One would think that this is a great story in and of itself. And it is, but it's just one part of your story because there's a lot of things that led to you. <laughs> Many being... things have happened to me, Dawn. <laughs> We're going to get into all of them. But first, it should be said that you are Canadian and I guess somewhat from the East Coast, right? Yeah, absolutely. From the Maritimes, my family's in Prince Edward Island, Canada. Amazing. So another East Coaster, for those who are unaware, I am a newfie. And let's just say in Maritime Canada, they're, yeah, we're a special people. Yeah. <laughs> it breeds a special sort of people. So did you grow up in PEI or you mentioned earlier Montreal? Did you grow up in Montreal? Yeah, so I'm, I was a bit of a nomad growing up. So from Montreal originally, but we've lived coast to coast in Canada. Um, so you know, Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, just outside Toronto, uh, Prince Edward Island, Chicago, and now I'm based in the UK, um, just outside of London. So I've I've had the the fortune of living in many different places. I love that. Was sport always something part of your life growing up? Like, when did you actually get involved in sport? I mean, for me, I was a real sporty kid, but I was like the worst at everything. And I think that's a little different. I think you were sporty, were probably the best at everything. <laughs> up. No, I mean, that's very kind of you. But no, I was I was I was good at a very limited number of things. So growing up, I had relentless energy as a child, and my parents didn't quite know how to handle that. So I think the way they approached it is, well, what's cheap? and what will expel all of her energy. And that was running. <laughs> so they put me, oh gosh, I was probably in grade school. They put me in a track and field club 
And I started running and the first few races I entered, they were mixed gender. I was probably grade three and I was beating boys that were in grade eight. And, and so it became quite apparent that I had what one would call probably a natural inclination towards running. So that over the years really got honed. And I started competing at varsity levels at the age of 14, um, training with university teams, um, qualifying for the Junior Olympics, and ultimately running Commonwealth Game qualifying times by the time I was 15 years old. Uh, so my sights really got set at quite a young age and all my energy got focused at quite a young age of becoming an Olympian and, and getting my life and my activities in order to fulfill that end. So I was quite athletic as a child, but very focused in that endeavor. Do you remember at what stage you were thinking Olympics? Because we speak to a lot of athletes who have been practicing from a very young age on the Metal Set podcast. And there's always like a moment where things become very serious. And mm -hmm. It's quite, when you think about it as an adult, you think, wow, you, you know, as a young person making those decisions that you want to focus on the Olympics or this elite level of competition where all of your focus needs to go into it. Do you remember what age that was? Do you remember like the conversations your parents were having, your coaches were having at that time? Yeah, I think at the time, it, I wouldn't say it was a, an exact age. It was probably when I was around 15, 16, I had been undefeated at a national level for a few years, actually, which was relatively unheard of. I was breaking national records in every kind of sanctioned event. Uh, and I was running in varsity events, even though I technically wasn't allowed to because I was too young. And when the first time I heard Olympics was in the context of changing my coaches. So I was going mm -hmm. from my local track coach to a varsity coach who then, after working with me, said, I know an individual um, who's training some Olympic runners and Olympic hopefuls, and I think you should go and you should work and, and do your training with this individual. And that was met, I think, with mixed emotion because on one hand, I felt safe where I was. I was comfortable. I was winning races and Olympics was big league. So that, that put the fear in me, if I'm being honest, but it was a very marked departure, I think, from life as I knew it as a child towards more mm -hmm. pure focused athletic training as a job. And were your parents fully supportive of this? Because I mean, if you're 15, you have to have a lot of parental support, just even from driving you places and yeah. coaching and making sure you're on track. I was so supported and not in a point where it was to the detriment of, of my well-being. My parents pushed me to mm -hmm. the extent that they felt I could be pushed. But at the end of the day, they were always very clear with me that it was my decision if I wanted to continue. And I think that's what gave me the freedom to really explore what my limits were and, and, and how much I was willing to train and sacrifice, I suppose, my youth <laughs> to really advance in the sport. So I was incredibly uh, lucky to have such a supportive family behind me. Now, you mentioned... A couple of national records. <laughs> and I just want to outline this for everybody because it's amazing. You have a national record holder in 800 meter, 1500 meter and 3000 meter, right? Yeah. Yeah. Back and in the, the day. fastest one mile time in, in North America. Wow. Oh, fourth fastest. I have to, I would love to fourth. have had the fastest. It was the fourth fastest. <laughs> That is amazing. As someone who is like, never, I'm not very naturally inclined to running, even though I toy with the idea of ultra running every now and again. That is amazing. Yeah, it's fantastic. My sister is uh, in track and field and was the runner I wasn't. Now you qualified for the Junior Commonwealth Games, correct? Uh, so Junior Olympics, and then I ran a junior qualifying Olympics. time for the Commonwealth Games. Yeah. And did you go to the Commonwealth Games? 
I didn't. No, that's when my injury uh, started. And that's when my life really began to change was actually shortly after I received and, and ran qualifying times for those two big events. And if you don't mind, because I know yeah. that's probably quite a painful memory, can you talk us through what happened? Yeah, yeah, I would love to. I've processed it. It's okay. This is a happy hour <laughs> to talk about it. Uh, so essentially, I had several stress fractures in the metatarsals. So for those of you who don't know, those are the long bones in your feet that go down towards your toes. Now, they were misdiagnosed for several months by my trainers. And so I kept continuing to run. Um, they said these were bone bruises. You know, you'll be fine. We can do some cross training and adaptation. Uh, so I continued to do that. But the pain in my feet kept getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and mm -hmm. by the time it got so bad, I could hardly walk. I had a scan done and it turns out I had torn almost every single tendon and ligament that held the bones in my metatarsals together. So I made a decision with my parents, with my coaches and, and with an exceptional orthopedic surgeon to operate on both of my feet at the same time. We didn't want to mm -hmm. do one at a time because that would prolong my recovery. It would delay my training. And so we said one and done, let's get them all done at the same time. I'll go into a wheelchair for a few months, but I can train in the water. I can, you know, try to maintain my fitness while I recover. So we made that decision. Screws were put into both feet to anchor my bones back together and, and repair that soft tissue damage. And um, what happened at, after the back of that really is what changed my life. Um, I had stopped healing. I um, was getting really, really severe nerve pain. And this was something that the surgeons had never seen. They didn't know what had happened. And it turns out I developed a disease of my nervous system that would actually go on to almost uh, paralyze my entire body um, over the space of a few years. Wow. Do you remember getting that diagnosis? I mean, you must have felt like things weren't, as you mentioned, you know, pain. It wasn't, it felt like it was maybe not healing and not getting better. Do you remember the actual day of the diagnosis? How did that feel? Yeah, so the diagnosis was really difficult because at the time it wasn't a well understood disease. It's quite rare. Mm -hmm. So, what I remember is just fear because it kept getting worse and worse. So, I stopped healing. So, my sutures wouldn't close. They had to go in, they had to remove the screws, they had to find another way to close the wounds on my feet. And then, what started happening is my feet and my lower legs started changing color. They started turning purple, shades of black. And I was getting severe nerve pain. It felt like third degree burns or broken bones. In, in my lower extremities. And over a month or two, this started going up my legs, into my knees, into my hips, and I actually lost the ability to move my joints because of it. Oh, wow. And over time, while they were still trying to find the diagnosis and I was undertaking all these tests, it traveled up into my right arm and I lost the use of my hand and my right arm. And eventually most of the use in my left hand went too. So, wow. yeah, so when we got a diagnosis, it was with relief, I suppose, but also mm -hmm. with a little bit of trepidation because it wasn't well understood. There was not really a cure other than really aggressive rehabilitation to retrain your nerve pathways um, and teach myself to walk again and, you know, hold a pencil again and, and, and basically function mm -hmm. again. So it was it was a long process and it was really traumatic to go from somebody who was able-bodied, independent, someone who thought they knew what their life was going to look like to somebody who, you know, couldn't hug their parents, couldn't feed themselves, essentially. So it was, mm -hmm. it was a shock. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine it being absolutely devastating. Was, was it 
understood at that moment when you got the diagnosis that it would be a long process or were you still thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to beat this, uh, I'm going to recover and then go on to compete again? Or was it pretty clear to you at that time? Because I just can't imagine wrapping my head around that as a high school. Like how old were you at the time? Yeah, I was late teens. Um, so I, I didn't, uh, I had to be pulled out of high school in my final year because I couldn't attend school. Mm -hmm. I wasn't thinking about competing I don't remember a lot of the years, to be honest. The pain was was mm -hmm. exceptional. And I remember, just to speak frankly, waking up every day and just thinking, I don't want to live anymore. This mm. disease is is known as the most painful disease known to modern medicine. <laughs> so there's there's actually a pain scale that is an objective measure of pain, and it, me it measures pain out of 50. And if you fracture a bone, that's about 19 out of 50. If you are unlucky mm -hmm. enough to have a finger amputated without anesthesia, that's about 40 out of 50. And this disease ranks 46 out of 50. And I was living with that wow. every day for years. So I didn't have the time or the energy to really reflect on anything except just trying to get through day by day. Um, mm -hmm. if, I'm, if I'm being honest, yeah, the, the entire ordeal actually gave yeah. me PTSD. But um, I can, Yeah, I can 100% believe that. I mean, that's very, very traumatic. I mean, obviously, you've done the TCR. There was a period of recovery. It gets yeah, guys, it gets better. <laughs> I mean, was there a moment where you could see, like, there's progress being made, things were getting better? And talk us through kind of recovery, because that feels like an athletic pursuit in and of itself. The rehab for this must have been very intense. Yeah, it was wild. It challenged me in ways that I will never be challenged ever again in my entire life. So the rehabilitation process, learning to walk, getting out of my wheelchair, being able to stop using assisted devices like canes and, and walkers was an incredibly trying process. And it made it even more difficult because I kept comparing myself to what my abilities were before my illness. And mm. that was devastating. Yeah. And I remember my psychologist at the time saying, you know, you need to stop this. This isn't healthy. You need to focus mm -hmm. on where you are and be grateful for what you can do day by day. So my rehabilitation took years. Uh, a lot of pool therapy, learning to walk in the pools, a lot of occupational therapy, you know, to practice holding pens and pencils and doing up my shoelaces and, you know, the little things we take for granted every day. And it took me probably, I would say about 10 years before I mm -hmm. had enough confidence in myself and in, I guess, knowing my body before I started exercising again. It took me a really, really long mm -hmm. time to even just try it. <laughs> Yeah, I cannot imagine. I just cannot. And that's amazing that you've come out of that with such a good attitude. Yeah, about I mean, it and a willingness to to try these crazy things I mean, again. You have to, right? And, and I think what it taught me is when something is taken away from you and you have a big failure in your life, if it doesn't kill you, that's the greatest gift. Like I had nothing left to lose. Mm. So I was like, I'm going to start running. So <laughs> I started running and, you know, I started with 5Ks, 10Ks, that progressed to 100Ks, 200Ks. And then I was like, I've got it. I was like, I can't go fast anymore. I don't have the power anymore, yeah. but I can endure. I know about that. So I'm going to play to my yeah. strengths now and, and kind of pivot and look at what ultra endurance activities can give me as a way to reconnect both physically with my new body, but also with my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to take a step back to your first run. <laughs> 
You know, I'm, we do, we do a bit of a questionnaire lifting the lid off of our process, but you mentioned one of your proudest moments was actually being able to walk out of your wheelchair, I believe, if I'm remembering that correctly. So talk us through going from, you know, just being out of a wheelchair to actually running again. Was there a catalyst for it or was it just a slow progression and walking further, walking faster and then starting to jog? Or was there a moment or person that kind of led to you starting to run again? Yeah. So I think it was, I would say it was a slow progression because I I rehabbed um, and then I was out living, you know, my life just not really an athletic one for about eight to 10 years after getting out of my my chair. But what inspired me to start running? I think I had finally made peace with the fact that my life didn't turn out the way I was expecting it to. But that doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that it's not a good life. So I was shying away from running because I would always compare myself to the young me the one who wanted to be an Olympian, Mm -hmm. the one who was strong and fast. And I knew I would never be that again. So I I was scared to run. And I think one day I just figured like, what the hell? Like you've been through so much. You're so much stronger than you're giving yourself credit for. Just get out the door. Like if you hate it, you can stop. No one's making you do it. I want to ask this question because you're not just an accomplished athlete. You're also very accomplished academic. You've got a PhD. You've got four degrees, I believe, right? And I love your Instagram handle. It's not that kind of doctor (laughs) as a nod to your PhD. Did you feel a loss? I mean, you mentioned the loss of identity, but then did you turn to academics as another way? You you strike me as the person, you know, you're an achiever. (laughs) Was your energy then focused into academics or were you just following your natural career goals or progression from there? Yeah, no, it wasn't natural career goals. I I never had an interest in academics. It was was running. That was my thing. And then running got taken away from me. So I was like, what else can I do with my energy? I don't know who I am or or really what I want to be in my life anymore. I don't know my identity after this illness. So I'm just going to stay busy. And for me, what that looked like at that time was just university and research and, and doing degrees. So I was able to kind of explore a different part of myself. But I think this is where the competitive nature and like relentless energy comes in. It's like, I have to win. And so I couldn't Mm. win university (laughs) until I got my doctorate. Um, So I think that's, that's probably how it materialized. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, University tick. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, so that's how we ended up with the degrees and and with the doctorate. And it was a wonderful journey because it taught me a whole new side of myself outside of athletics, but it wasn't one I was expecting, I suppose, when I was, when I was younger. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it was like this for you, but for my first ultra, you know, people asking me, how, oh, how did you do that? How did you do that? Mm -hmm. And we hear a lot about sports teaching us lessons, but for me, life taught me lessons that helped me go in a quick amount of time to complete an ultra just because it was just a buildup of maybe wild shots I took on myself to try to accomplish stuff and they worked out. So I don't know if that was the same for you. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. It was, um, Why I'm really interested in ultras and why I think I kind of pivoted there is the life lessons I got. They've taught me that we are, and I think women especially, we don't give ourselves credit for how strong we are. And what I heard a lot when I was sick was that, oh, you're so strong, you know, you're fighting this. But that didn't give me a choice. I was just in it and I had to Mm -hmm. do it. 
And what ultras allow me to do is really go back to that place where you have to endure, but I'm coming at it from a place of power now. And I'm choosing Mm -hmm. to do that. And I'm choosing to leverage the experiences that life has given me to remind me that I'm capable of withstanding some pretty gnarly stuff, as I think a lot of female, you know, athletes and, and all around athletes are as well. So I would say it's predominantly the life experience that that fuels me. And it sounds like you too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You mentioned running 250 kilometers. And right now I'm like, <laughs> you know, I, I would think nothing of cycling a thousand, but running 250, that seems ludicrous. <laughs> yeah. Were you competing? Were you competing in races? I know you said you didn't like the, it yeah. was more to test yourself, but were they actual like ultra races that you were doing? Or was it just like, hey, I'm just going to run out run the door and run 250K? <laughs> I mean, you make it sound so easy. I wish I could say it was that easy, but no, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. No, so I, I actually do not compete in any type of organized running events. For me, mm-hmm. any type of race really just kind of triggers that dread and anxiety from when I was competing when I was younger. And so I purposefully Mm -hmm. avoid them. Um, I would actually now maybe think about doing them. But um, the reason I progressed my mileage so much was um, I was actually working on in June this past year, right before the transcontinental, I was actually hoping to um, embark on a world record attempt. So fastest woman to run Land's End to John O'Groats. I had my crew, I had my charitable beneficiaries, I had my campaign ready. And so that was the reason for the mileage build. But they're all miles done Mm -hmm. by myself you know, with mates on bikes, perhaps, and uh, usually just through the hills and, and through the mountains. It's it's not anything I do in sanctioned kind of race activities. So talk me through this Land's End to John O'Groats, because I know a few people that have cycled it. From memory, is it 1300 kilometers? How far is it? It's a bit, a bit farther than that. But yeah, you're in the vicinity. Yeah. <laughs> and you were going to run that. <laughs> I was going to run that in hopefully 12 days. In 12 days. Okay. <laughs> Because there'd be cyclists. I'm like, okay. Because there'd be cyclists out there thinking, oh, 12 days, that would be a challenge for them. But to run it, that's a whole other kettle of fish. Yeah. Why? <laughs> that's a great question. What was that your I why? Really I think it goes back to what I was why saying. Because <laughs> I can. No, I don't know if I can. That's, um, yeah. I think it was, again, running really helped me reconnect with my new body and my new capabilities mm-hmm. after my illness. And it helped me, I think, heal my mind as well from the PTSD I suffered and, you know, from the loss of my youth and the loss of my health and what I thought my life was going to be. So running really helped me find myself again. And I found through mm-hmm. these life experiences that I can persist through almost anything. And the miles that I was running, I was running them quickly. And so I began looking at, well, what could I do? What could I do to bring attention to maybe some of the charities that helped me and my family? Um, how could I make this story kind of wider known so maybe other people who are going through health challenges can see that there is a way out, even if you're not the same at the end of it? It doesn't mean it's worse. It's just different. Mm-hmm. So I started looking and then they call it Lay Jog, Land's End to John O'Groats. That was a record mm-hmm. that seemed really interesting to me. And uh, I began talking to people who had crewed previous runners. Um, I spoke to the current world record holder, who's incredibly supportive, as was her crew, and really just kind of decided then and there. I was like, yeah, I'm doing this. <laughs> so then began about 18 are... months of prep. 18 months. Mm. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by the Spinney's Dubai 92 Cycle Challenge. 
would you know that this was actually my first ever bike race? The next edition of the challenge comprises three events, all starting and ending at Expo City Dubai this coming February. This is a challenge for everyone. The junior rides and the 35-kilometer Total Energies Outride are both set for Saturday the 24th of February, while the 92-kilometer UCI Grand Fondo World Championship Qualifier takes place on Sunday the 25th. For more info and to sign up, visit cyclechallenge.ae, easily linked in our show notes. I'll see you there. When did you find out about the fractures? Yeah, so I was due to start the run in June 2023. I found out about the fractures early December 2022. Oh, wow. And what happened is I was having some pain in my quad, in my thigh. It wasn't going away. It felt metallic. And people were like, that's weird. Like, what do you mean metallic? Uh, Yeah. No one really believed me that it was bone because they're like, well, your femur you would know if you broke it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it turns out I had two borderline three fractures in my femur that I had been training on. So devastatingly, I had to, six months wouldn't be enough to rehab it and put it under that kind of pressure. So I had to, had to call it off. That must've been a difficult uh, decision to make, to call it off. And I imagine letting everyone know around you as well. It was devastating. And and to be honest, I don't think I'm a pretty optimistic person. I don't think I left my Mm -hmm. house for a week after I got the diagnosis because it was a million little deaths. It was calling your parents and telling them it was off. It was calling your crew. It was calling the charities you were going to support and tell them you couldn't. So it was repeating this really painful story over and over. And on top of that, it almost mirrored what I had gone through as a young adult in having Mm -hmm. this big goal just taken away from you because your body fails you. So it, it was really traumatic, perhaps more than I, I usually talk about. But mm-hmm. um, in, you know, they say when one door closes, another usually opens. So in comes the transcontinental. <laughs> <laughs> the crazy door is opened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The door to the other, the other realm. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. You must have had incredible fitness uh, training for this when this all happened. Did you maintain that fitness? Yeah. So I didn't miss a day of training. I got stuck in a full leg cast when I got the femur diagnosis and I was in the gym the next day. I work with an incredible sports performance trainer who basically adapted everything for me so I didn't miss a day. I was actually on an indoor spin bike spinning with one leg. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, so the bike, as as most ultra runners will know, the bike is your best friend when it comes to cross training. So um, mm. I had been using indoor spin bikes quite a lot to take some of the load off my legs and maintain my aerobic and anaerobic capacity. So just hopped on that, just one-legged. Um, so I was able to maintain my fitness. So <laughs> December, I think from memory, that's when the the applications from for the TCR open, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, I think it was November. So yeah, maybe so the diagno the diagnosis and the applications kind of happened one in the same time. And mm. uh, there was a gentleman who trains at my gym who's been a cyclist his entire life, never done endurance cycling, but but proficient cyclist. Uh, and he said, you know, I don't know many people who could just jump into an ultra endurance event except you. I see you're injured. Would you like to do the transcontinental with me? You basically get to ride a bike across Europe. And I was like, sure. 
He's like, there's a Netflix documentary. <laughs> you should watch it. I didn't watch it. <laughs> I just said yes. <laughs> I should have watched it. <laughs> and this is John, correct? This is John. This is my Paris partner, John. <laughs> yeah. So did you really know that much about John? I didn't know John at like, all. Oh, okay. That was our first conversation. <laughs> he was like, I have a bike race. Do you want to do it with me? <laughs> wow. Was, yeah, that was our first conversation. Wow. And, and here we are. So in went to that the application <laughs> and then you guys, yeah, got bored. So did you know how to actually ride a bike outside? Like you were still injured. You were still recovering. Yeah. Did, were you, I know like if you're a Canadian, I would imagine you're out riding your bike as a kid. Like I was like, I knew how to ride a bike, but yeah. Did you, you, I know you weren't a cyclist. Yeah. No, wasn't, wasn't a cyclist. Knew how to ride like, a bike. Yeah. So, I mean, like the summer before the transcontinental, I would go out like on cafe rides, I guess. So we do like 40 mm -hmm. kilometers on a Sunday and take like four hours doing it. <laughs> so yeah. I, I could ride a bike. I wouldn't call myself proficient at that stage. I didn't know the difference between front and rear brake. Uh, I didn't know anything about gearing. Like it was, you just stuck me on the thing and I would pedal. That was essentially my, my knowledge level yeah. when it came to biking outdoors. <laughs> so when did the cast come off and when did training start officially? Yeah, well, training, I started upping my volume with my aerobic work after we applied. And I did that on an indoor spin bike because I figured just in case the organizers are, you know, wild enough to let us in, I might as well just you know, prepare myself. <laughs> and uh, so the cast was actually, um, I had to keep it on for about, I mean, I kept it on for a month. It probably should have been on for two, but mm. here we are. And uh, got things to do. I got things to do. I was busy. <laughs> uh, and then yeah. I was training just again on an indoor spin bike, probably until March. And that's when I bought who I now refer to as Black Betty, my Cannondale Topstone Carbon yeah gravel bike so she got delivered middle end of march transcontinental right. started in july wow yeah. so we do you remember the first ride on on betty um i mean i probably blocked it out it was probably really bad i can tell you the first few rides i did that season were all they were like 30 kilometers 40 kilometers mm -hmm. and i remember i would go out with my partner at the time and he's a prolific cyclist and we'd be going at 26 K an hour and I would just be blowing. <laughs> and I remember thinking on those first few rides, I'm like, there's no, like 4,000 4, kilometers. Like, what are you thinking? Like, you cannot do this. You can barely yeah. get through 30. Um, and that's when I just kind of decided to lean in and make it an experiment. And like, what can you achieve if you go tunnel vision on something? Um, mm -hmm. Because I learned very quickly that running fit does not translate to bike fit. So I had no choice but to put my money where my mouth was and, and try to skill up. Did you get a coach? No, I, I programmed all my own training. <laughs> I'm a researcher, Dawn, so I, I love a good bit of research. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I programmed myself, but I do, as I mentioned, have a, an exceptional um, strength and conditioning coach who who helped program my strength work mm -hmm. as I built my volume phases. And what did the volume look like in terms of progression? I mean, for me, when I think about it, I remember I did like the second 50K I ever did. I think I threw up after. <laughs> like, you know, I was so like gassed and like out of it. 
And then it just started to build up to like, I remember one weekend I did 70, the next weekend I did 90. And then next thing you know, I was doing 120, 150, and then 200. Mm. Like it built up probably in about two months. Was that similar for you? Um, Yeah, it was similar. So I didn't really attack my training the same way I would say a lot of more proficient cyclists did. So John and I both did a lot of intervals-based training indoors actually mm-hmm. um right. on our on our bikes and i was i was using an indoor spin bike i wasn't even using black betty uh to try to just build the power in my legs because i noticed my running legs would mm-hmm. not get me through transcontinental and so it would usually you know two three days a week i'd be doing two to three hours of intervals indoors on the bike and then the weekends would be my longer rides so yeah i would start with 30k mm-hmm to 50k I jump pretty quickly up to like 130k and then I what I would start doing is stacking my rides so I would do three days in a row of like 130k right and then I would go up to 100 miles 200 miles 250 miles um is is how I progressed but I had about what five months to do that in so it wasn't comfortable and I wouldn't recommend it to anyone listening (laughs) Yeah, my coach is like, don't be like Dawn. (laughs) Don't be like Sarah. Exactly. Yeah, I learned my lesson. It's not great. (laughs) Yeah, I I think the first race, like I look back, I just remember being tired all the time, like eating a pizza and then like falling asleep on the sofa. So tired. I mean, fitness is one part of it, as I'm sure you know. (laughs) There's a lot of other elements that go into a race like the Transcontinental. I mean, the races I've done. We had the route given to us, you know, pretty mm-hmm. much, which is takes out a whole big piece of planning. How did you tackle the other elements? You know, the route planning, the bike packing, like what to bring? How did you, was it research? Like just yeah. <laughs> put on your research cap and just find information? Yeah, absolutely. So my race partner, John, he's an engineer. So we're both, and I work in finance, so we're both very technically minded. <laughs> it was like the meeting of the nerds, right? right. So when it came when it yeah. came to logistics, <laughs> we were both like all over it. Now, John was exceptionally talented at the map making. Uh, so he, he pretty much owned mm-hmm. that. But the way we looked at it and the way we split up our days it worked perfectly. We nailed it first time. We never thought we would have, but we looked at it as a function of um, essentially mileage, elevation. We looked at historical wind patterns um, over the areas to help influence our route. And then we basically also put a penalty for compounding fatigue on the mileage. So when we looked at it, for example, day one, we did 560 kilometers, I think, but it was through France. So it was pretty flat. So you could just go forever. Whereas there was other days, for example, in Albania, with the elevation, with the heat, with our compound fatigue, and with the headwind, it took us all day to do 110 miles. So the way we built our maps was we had these characteristics that we would keep in mind and that's how we kind of built out our days and we typically had a b and c maps or a and b maps so if something went wrong you know we could we could pivot and either take a new route um and try to optimize for for whatever had happened wow i'm like i'm i'm someone that just maybe i'm just based on feelings i'm like yeah it'll be all right we'll figure it out (laughs) 
<laughs> like historical wind patterns. That's I'm like, like whoa. Yeah. No, John and I couldn't handle that. Like we need, like we need to know what's happening and when it's happening. Otherwise, like, um, so between the two of us, it worked quite well. So he managed most of the maps. And then um, I mm. was really keen on the kit. So a lot of it was speaking to previous riders, just stalking people mm -hmm. on socials to try to look at what they were bringing. And then just for me, I'm really militant on traveling light. We don't need a bunch of stuff. So mm -hmm. we, for example, carried far less clothing and we put some emergency like thousand calorie meals in our packs and we allocated our weight resource mm -hmm. to that in case we couldn't find um, shelter or food anywhere. And those actually came in handy. So for us, it was really trying to look at the highest, the, the things that could go wrong that were in the highest probability and try to optimize through our mapping and through our kit list for those circumstances and then just accepting shit's going to happen that you can plan for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Always seems that the history in my race is a lot. So the last much. one in particular. Yeah. <laughs> did you feel <laughs> like, I mean, I'm going to ask you, did you feel prepared? But I'm like, I never am able to feel prepared 100% for this, you know, like, and then I just kind of like, when I don't feel prepared, I'm like, yeah, whatever, just figure it out. <laughs> See, I love that. Did confidence. you feel prepared? I felt prepared. I felt so prepared. Yeah. You should have seen the checklists. Like I dedicated two rooms in my house to just TCR, like war room. Really? Yeah, it was wow. like, because I was so scared. I didn't believe in my capabilities. I knew I was out of my depth. I had people telling me, like my bike mechanic, when I told him I got in, he laughed because he thought I was joking. Like I knew I was out of my depth. And <laughs> the way I compensated for that was like over-preparedness in like every other aspect of the race. So right. I knew if I was going to go into this, it was I was not going to fail because of something that was in my direct control. That was the principle I operated That's amazing. on. If I could plan and prepare and optimize for it, I was going to do it. So I felt prepared mm -hmm. other than the fact that I didn't really know how to ride a bike that well. <laughs> Minor detail. Minor detail. <laughs> um, the race briefing, I feel like that was the moment for me, like in my first race mm -hmm. where I was like, okay, this is really real. This is real. This is happening. Yeah. Like you're doing this. Yeah. Do you remember the race briefing for you and looking around and seeing there'd be some serious cyclists there, Christoph, who won it, and many others who are very, very competitive, very, very experienced. What was going through your brain in, in the, the race briefing? I wasn't bothered at all. I don't follow any ultra Good. cyclists or ultra runners, so I wouldn't. I have a huge deal of respect for them. I no, just personally too. don't don't follow them. So I wasn't really intimidated. I think I knew from the outset I was so far out of my element that if I didn't even make it to the end of day one, that's okay. Because I felt like so many people just weren't expecting anything from me. So it was kind of a safe place mm -hmm. to be. I wasn't nervous because I had prepared what I could. I think my only fear was that I would let people down who had helped me. I had an army of people helping me prepare for this mentally and physically. So, but in the race briefing itself, I don't remember being nervous. I just remember feeling kind of like at peace that everything I had worked so hard for, for six months was finally here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. I think, yeah, if I look back to my first race, that was like the most magical moment. Yeah. And I wish I had, in, you know, it's always in hindsight, but like you think, 
nobody's expecting anything yeah. it's just you can just do whatever you want and that's that's the <laughs> like you're not even expecting anything yeah that's the beauty of these events and that's why i i kind of fell in love with this concept of self-supported ultra cycling because you can be the best athlete in the world to not make it to day two if you just have bad luck you know you can only mm. control for so much and i think that brings a great element of fun to these events that's mm -hmm. often overlooked yeah yeah i yeah, I agree 100%. It's the element I remember speaking, I think it was the second race I've done and someone was like, I'm really nervous about what's going to happen. And I said, I was just thinking like, yeah, that's it, though. You don't know what's going to happen. It could be really, yeah. <laughs> really great things happen on the race. I know there's a lot of airtime happened to the scary bits or the dogs yeah. chasing you and stuff like that. But there's really beautiful moments that happen on these races that you just can't anticipate really beautiful moments of like human connection with people you're racing with or against and just members of the public and yeah. you see beautiful things. It's yeah. yeah. You just don't know what's going to happen. Exactly. <laughs> so you and John, I mean, I have to ask too, the concept of pairs for me is, I want to say I would be able to do it with somebody else, <laughs> but then I don't know if I could. <laughs> like a friend here who shall remain nameless asked me once if I wanted to do a race with him. And I was thinking, no, because you talk too much. Like in his brain, in my mind, I didn't tell him this. <laughs> I will never tell him, but I wouldn't. He would drive me crazy. Yeah. Like he's, it's not his fault. I just wouldn't be able to listen to him speak all the time. <laughs> Did you have an idea? Like, how much writing did you guys do together? And did you have an idea of what the dynamic would be like between you two? Yeah, no, this is where the story gets even more insane, Dawn, is I think we rode together like twice. <laughs> so like, we didn't, we didn't know each other, right? When we signed up to do it, I had no idea what I was signing up for. I was just along for the ride. And then we obviously, as, as the prep continued, we had to start, you know, talking more and more, planning more and more. And we both have very strong personalities. We're both used to being in charge and we're both very like technically minded. So he would do a map and I was like, oh, well, why did you do that? I don't like that. Like, talk me through that. And he'd be like, no, this is what we're doing. I know more than you. And then I would do the same with like the way I was programming the intervals. So <laughs> it was really interesting. And at the start, I can't speak for John. Like we weren't sure how we were going to get on. You know, like mm. it could have blown up on day one <laughs> for all we knew because um, we'd only really done two long rides together. But I think the only way I can describe it is you go from being complete strangers with somebody to like being married for 60 years. Like there's no in between when you when you race pairs with somebody <laughs> mm -hmm. that you don't really have like a relationship with. So it was a fascinating experience. Proud to say we made it through and we're great friends now. Um, you still, okay, good. You're still talking. We didn't have a single argument. That's amazing. I know. I'm still shocked. <laughs> I feel like there's a relationship book in the works here somewhere. It could be like the seeds of one. Because this is such a high pressure, high stress situation. I think to not it... know. Maybe it's you not knowing each other that well. You kind of helped maybe i think that worked in our favor because by the time we got to control point three a lot of the other pairs were like partners they were in relationships and uh, i remember someone at the volunteer at the control point was saying oh well you're one of the like last pairs who are actually speaking to each other and i think it's because we didn't oh, have really? that emotional connection we almost came at it like colleagues and it was our job mm -hmm. to get the other person through so my responsibility i was really concerned with john's welfare is he eating enough are we resting enough and he was concerned about mine so it almost became 
that was our job. It wasn't thinking about how, you know, shitty we were feeling. It was, how's John? Does John need help? How's Sarah? Does Sarah need help? And that kind of helps take your mind off of the difficult situation that you're going through because you're focused on someone else's welfare. So we, we kind of had some principles. So, you know, honesty, you know, you can't pretend to be tough, like leave your ego at the door and just tell the other person how you're feeling and tell them regularly mm-hmm. and openly. And then also just leave your dignity at the door because as we know with ultra racing, yeah. um, there's no <laughs> secrets on the road. It's gone. Yeah, there's there's yeah. no dignity. And so those were the no. principles we operated on and it served us really well. Yeah, it did. <laughs> That's amazing. I think yeah, I, I love this. I love speaking to to you as a researcher and like hearing an engineer's point of view because it's so different from the way I I operate. I love it. You need to There's get John on this podcast. There for me. Yeah, he would he would love to talk yeah, about I it. Yeah, I do. Sure. I mean, look, my dad my dad's an engineer, and historically, I have dated engineers in the past, and it's just like their brain just works a completely different way yeah. to mine. It's just like the way they look at things and operate. And it's just, it's fascinating to me, but sometimes whenever they're speaking about engineering stuff, like my eyes just. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to talk about the day, not the day by day, because it's too many days and I'm sure you would not be able to remember. (laughs) I dissociated. Like like, I have no idea where I was half the time. (laughs) Yeah. You mentioned though you did 500 kilometers the first day, give or take, right? Almost 600, I think. Yeah. Wow. Day one. Getting across France. What, like, what in before you got to CP3? What happened that was kind of stand out for you, good or bad? Because I know you know you can have kind of the full gamut of emotions in one day, or even in a morning or an afternoon on races like this, were there any standout moments that kind of took place in the lead up to CP3? Ooh, great question. I would say there's two standout moments in a positive perspective. So the first one was day one. So getting to that almost 600 kilometer mark um, in the, in the first 24 hours of the race, that was something I had just never even thought was possible for me and to do it and feel relatively okay on the flats we were mm-hmm. pulling 35 36 kilometers an hour uh, we were feeling great and to be able to achieve that that was really a standout moment for me and, and one that will give me confidence probably for the rest of my life even if i never do it again <laughs> and uh the, yeah. the second standout moment i would say was reaching the first control point in Lavinio, italy i'm not a climber mm-hmm. okay all of you who go to the Alps and cycle it for fun, like I don't know what happened to you <laughs> as a child, but uh, lads. yeah, lads. <laughs> I wouldn't wish it on anyone. Um, so I was that reaching the first control point after fighting my way through the Alps and crying every hour on the hour was a remarkable achievement for me. And I was really proud of myself for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I think that the, the final standout moment was just as we progressed past Italy into some of these other perhaps lesser known countries, for me anyways, was seeing how the power of sport can really unite people. We had people in Bosnia and Slovenia come out of their houses who were dot watching and cheer us on. And we had people with pots and pans on the side of the road in the middle of you know nowhere come out and, and cheer us on. And that was really stand out for me. And it, it showed that kind of boundary breaking power of sport. Yeah, I, 
I've had such beautiful moments where they're just totally unexpected. People cheering you. I've ended up bawling, like crying my eyes out from just the tiniest little gesture from somebody on the road saying, you know, well done or keep going and stuff. It's amazing. There was a gentleman and I think we were in Italy. We were about to exit Italy and we had just finished this really horrific climb. It wasn't, it was like four or 5%, but it went on for like, (laughs) you know, like 60, 70 K the thing never ended. And we were near the top. And we were both just so tired and we stopped and there was this gentleman uh, on his bike on the side of the road and he saw our caps, the transcontinental caps, and he got off his bike and he kneeled down (laughs) and he was like, I'll be rooting for you. I'm following you. He's like, you guys are incredible. Um, And he was pretty much like bowing at our feet as like a joke, but he was also very sincere (laughs) when he was like, what you're doing is incredible. And I watched this race every single year and just to run into that gentleman at a point when we were so tired, just it kept us going for the next 24 hours. It was incredible. <laughs> yeah. So CP3, how many kilometers was CP3 in? Oh, that's great. Great question. Um, it was, pro- I would say pro- over 2,500 would be my guess. I'm sure someone will correct me. But yeah, was there a CP? Did you make? Was there a CP four after? I can't. Yeah, I'm just off the top of my yeah, head. Yeah, so CP three was in Burrell, Albania, and then CP four was in Meteora in Greece, and then the race finished in Thessaloniki right. in Greece. Did you make it to CP four? I made it right outside CP four. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Goodness, on one of the parkours. Uh, no, so I had finished. Yeah, right before the parkour. Finished the parkour. Right before the parkour in Meteora. So I'd gone through the Albanian parkour. We were well into Greece. I think we were 80 or 90 kilometers away from the the final control point when disaster struck. And what what was disaster? (laughs) We were... there was uh, there was a point in Greece where you basically had one of two really awful options, and you could either do I believe it was a forty kilometer off road, fifteen hundred meter climb, um over yeah it was about forty kilometers, fifty kilometers, or you could take the nice pavement road. It was about eighty five kilometers, ninety kilometers, but about twenty two hundred mm-hmm. of elevation. Choose your evil. Mm. We chose the former because we were on gravel bikes. And what this off-road turned out to be was basically just a series of switchbacks up a Greek mountain with guard dogs that would attack you in sand. So it wasn't rideable. You were hiking a bike. Uh, Mm. So we took that at about 11 p.m. By the time we started descending down the mountain, the point where it got rideable was probably 3 a.m. And I was so tired. Mm Um, I hit a rock or a divot or something at speed and my bike just got really violently tossed uh, to the side. I came off it like a load of bricks and fractured my wrist. And oh, no. we were able to keep riding to get to the town. So we slept on like patio pavement for a few hours and I got up to get on my bike again so we could head to Meteora. And I, I where the fracture was, I couldn't hold my bar. And because of the parkours that were coming, they were off-road. There was just no way I'd be able to kind of control my gears and and hold my bike steady. So I had to scratch. Oh, dear. And that was about 3,500 kilometers in, about a possible 4,000. Yeah, so our maps maps had about 3,800 kilometers. So it was about 300K from the finish. Yeah, it was a three-hour drive to the finish line. It was so close. (laughs) Wow. So close. But, you know... So my last race, which I think you've listened <laughs> to the DNF 
race report. Yeah. Yeah. In that I didn't, I didn't view that as a failure because it was a decision, you know, to make, it was 700 kilometers. And I'm like, that's 700 more than a lot of people. Ride. Yeah. And, um, my friend Julie, who ended up finishing the race, but I mean, we took a taxi at one stage. We let race organizers know, I think she got a disqualified finish. And I said to her after though, I was like, you rode the thing, you did it. You know, like you can't, if, it, if it's not classified, sure, you know, that's fine, but you rode what is it? A thousand minus 10 kilometers or whatever we took yeah. to get out of that dangerous situation. I hope you didn't feel like that was a failure. Oh my God. <laughs> riding that far. No, honestly, I've yeah. never been happier. I, John and I were both saying, despite the fact that we DNF'd, like our egos had never been bigger off the back of it. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially just because he doesn't come from an endurance sport background. I don't come from a cycling yeah. background. So it was so unlikely that we would have really achieved anything in this race and to have mm -hmm. made it into Greece <laughs> and not just into Greece, but like almost to the finish line. <laughs> like, I don't think I could have been any more proud of myself or any more proud of John for the way we worked together and the way we, we got through it in quite a competitive time. I think when we went down, it was day 12. Um, wow, that's I think amazing! It was day twelve, day oh thirteen, yeah. So we were, we were, we were hauling. We were doing pretty good considering we we had no idea what we were doing. So no, I don't feel like it was a failure at all. I was delighted. Good, 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 good. Yeah, good. I struggled a lot with that last race, like thinking, you know, I guess in the beginning, like feeling. In hindsight, I, was, I processed it and I was like, no, it's not a failure. No. And I certainly didn't view my friend's, my friend's ride as a failure. So I was like, I don't know why I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking of mine as that. But that's amazing. I mean, John, did John go on to finish the race? Like ride out the, the rest of it? I think I was following you at Instagram at this point. I think you were in a nice hotel somewhere <laughs> Yeah. after getting some medical treatment. Yeah. So John, when I decided to scratch... It was very early in the morning. The sun was just coming up. And I said, John, like, you need to keep going and finish this for us. Like, we're too close. I did not sleep in a ditch in Albania on the side of the highway for one of us <laughs> to not, not finish, to finish this. <laughs> <laughs> like, we've come too far. Yeah. So I remember, like, I gave him, like, my money and my battery packs. And I was like, just take it. Just finish the race. So he took off. But what, what the listeners may not know is we were in the heat wave in Europe. And so the days, the hottest I saw on my Garmin was 44 Celsius. And so water was incredibly important. Nutrition was incredibly important. John made it, I think, 40 kilometers down the road and he had to scratch because he had no water. He had no nutrition. We had run out of everything. And then I think also when you're that emotionally and physically fragile to have your race partner mm -hmm. taken away, if that had happened yeah. on day one, he would have been fine. But I think in the last day or two, it was just the final straw. So John decided to pull and, yeah. uh, and we picked him up <laughs> and made the long drive to Thessaloniki. Trauma bonded. I know, that's what we're saying. <laughs> the Total Energies Outright is ideal for cycling enthusiasts, families, children over 13, weekend riders, and everyone looking for a fun Spinners to Buy Cycle Challenge experience on traffic-free streets. Registration now open. Visit cyclechallenge.ae. It really is when you go through these experiences, even not like in a pair, I can only imagine how intense it is because I haven't done that. But my last race, like we were riding around each other, not as a pair, everyone kind of grouped yeah. <laughs> that race, you know, and I know that's contrary to the rules of the TCR in particular, but the races are kind of different races have different types of rules and what's allowable yeah. and what's not. But 
yeah, you really kind of bond with people and you have those experiences that you kind of understand them a lot better. And I feel like you have a lot more grace for people as well and understanding even in other situations. I find that. <laughs> you know, when you when you go through something like that together. I find that because you're, who you are as a person is really laid bare. I think because you, you get so fatigued mm-hmm. over the course of two weeks. You're dehydrated, you're malnourished, you know, you're cranky. Everything feels like it's the end of the world, every small inconvenience. And I think you really get to see someone for who they are and and who their character is. And when you see someone suffering, um, you know, next to you, but they don't stop, it's so inspirational. And you can't help but, Mm -hmm. I guess in your words, trauma bond, I suppose. Um, Because you you start rooting for each other, right? Because it's it's really, you can't really describe what it's like to be in a pain cave for, for 12, 13 days. Um, to many people unless they've been there and experienced that with you. Yeah. I mean, for me, I learned like four days is enough. So 13 (laughs) is like, wow. Yeah. (laughs) I'm, yeah, I'm, my ultra cycling career is put on hold because I'm like, four days is kind of a lot. Four days is a lot though. An immense. It is. It is a lot. But you like three times that? No. Like the amount of respect I have for everybody who's done that race is insane. Besides learning, you know, just overall learning that you could do it. Was there anything else that you were really surprised to learn about yourself or about the race or other people on on the TCR? Yeah, I think everyone that does TCR is like crazy. Um, And I mean that with like the most respect to my fellow athletes, many of whom I've befriended off the back of this event. But people who do these events, like the ultra, ultra long events, I always thought when you look at the marketing and you look at the branding behind it, it's beautiful, it's poetic, it's like human suffering and endurance. And then you get to the event and the people are nuts. Like <laughs> They're funny, they have the most interesting backstories, you know, most of them are, are world travelers doing this kind of thing. It's like second nature to them to like sleep in a bus stop in like Bosnia. Um, and it's just such yeah. a fascinating subculture. So I would, I think one of the things I learned is that it's a very unique group of people that do this. I found my people. They're completely fearless. And they're some of the most accepting and empowering people I have ever met. And they come from all backgrounds and all walks of life. And that's something I didn't know when I started. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I think I would be happy to see more women on the start line for sure out of that because it for not only to experience that, but also to be part of it and add to it as well. Riding in a pair. I mean, I want to kind of pivot over to safety because it is an issue. I, you know, for me personally, in the last race I did, I didn't necessarily feel like some of it was safe. That's why I ultimately stopped. And I think there's inherent risks when it comes to self-supported ultra cycling races. You're riding 4,000 kilometers on a bike with a partner or sometimes solo, you're, you know, you have everything with you, you're responsible for yourself. And you're sometimes put in situations like dogs. Yeah. <laughs> like my TCR kind of line is like Romanian bears. I'm like, <laughs> I am not dealing with Romanian bears. I've been chased by too many dogs. I cannot be chased by a bear. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's going to be the final parkour I feel next like over year. The... Have you not heard? <laughs> no, never. I was like, after this year, and I was on the TCR, like, Facebook group, you know, where people are kind of chatting. And there was some kind of, like, horrific story of, like, some masked motorcycle, like, summoning dogs from the woods. Oh it's like, I don't know if you've seen that. I'll have to, I know, I'll have to dig it up. But I was like, no, I'm never doing the TCR. But just to go back to what I was, the point I was hoping to make was, it feels like there's over the past couple of years, a race to make a race to make these races the most extreme, mm-hmm. you know, as if 4,000 kilometers, 40,000 meters of climbing was not extreme not good enough. enough. It is very extreme, yeah. <laughs> but it, yeah, no, not good enough. No, like let's add in like the barbed wire parkour yeah. or let's add in, you know, like the broken glass yeah. parkour. Did you feel like there were certain elements of this race that were unsafe, kind of unnecessarily? Or how did you feel about what was what measures were taken from a safety point of view, like in terms of the briefing versus what's actually like happening when you're out there? Yeah, great question. So I felt the briefing was I mean, what the briefing gave you and what you experienced on the road were apples and bananas. Um, I would say probably the one useful Mm -hmm. takeaway from the briefing was how to fend off the wild dogs. Um, so, so how, and tell, I want to know how, so we'll park okay. that, but go on. So, um, so essentially you're supposed to do the opposite of what's intuitive. You have to get off your bike, put the bike between you and yeah. the dog and like stare down the dog and be like, no. Whereas like my inclination is like, just put a thousand watts through the pedals and just like go. <laughs> right? yeah. They'll chase you every time. If you do that, don't do that. Um, yeah. so I felt, I felt like the. I'm really torn about the safety issue because on one hand, the nature Mm. of the event, you know what you're signing up for, you know it's Mm -hmm. unsupported, and the race organizers make it very, very clear. So, but I think the race organizers can do more to protect or be more flexible in the event for rider safety. Um, I'm speaking specifically... For this year's TCR riding through the heat wave, for example, 44 degrees Celsius, um, they had no flexibility on checkpoints, they had nothing. So a lot of riders near the end who were cutting it close on the checkpoints had no opportunity but to push themselves really, really hard through that heat. Um, I ran into one athlete who Mm -hmm. said he had been hallucinating. I passed out on my bike twice and crashed it um, and had to keep going. So I feel like there's ways the race organizers can help the athletes a little bit more than they are, either by changing mm-hmm. the dates of the races, potentially to be more accommodative for better weather later in the season, by being more flexible with the control points from the outset, just to help people stay a little bit safer where they can. I feel like the rest of it is down to probably research. For example, mm-hmm. in a country that won't be named, I got yelled at quite a lot by men in passing cars really aggressively. Mm. Um, at this point, I was really angry myself, so I would yell back. But, mm. you know, John would be like, don't do that. Like, don't start an incident. Just like sit and take it because we don't know what's, what's going to happen. happen. Yeah. And so I feel like it comes down to you need to research the countries. You need to research how drivers treat the cyclists and you need to know how to fend for yourself. Mm-hmm. So I feel like where possible, the race organizers should be adaptive, where they can mm-hmm. control for safety, while also recognizing that a great deal of responsibility is on the riders. Yeah, it's a bit of a tricky one. And I I feel conflicted as mm-hmm. well. And I've had this discussion with my coach, Neil, about a lot, because I was saying specifically the last race I did, Race Room Rwanda, and it's no secret because I put it on the <laughs> podcast. 
that I was I was very shocked by the conditions of some of the roads after being told I because I did a podcast with Simon, the organizer, being told what those conditions are possibly like. And then being on the race, it was very, very different. Yeah. And I would have planned things differently had I known that there was potential for these roads to not be as advertised. <laughs> so I feel like there's certain thing. And also, I, you know, talking to Neil as well. And the point you bring up about being yelled at from cars, I think women, men sometimes don't realize that we experience the world very differently than mm -hmm. they do. <laughs> and um, it's always on your mind about your personal safety and an experience that or an interaction that they have with someone might not feel intimidating to them, but it certainly feel it could certainly feel intimidating to us exactly. and make us very afraid. And it could be potentially threatening as well. So it's a difficult one because I feel like I think there's a duty for organizers this is my personal belief that you kind of need to be clear about what people are expected to do, especially if we want to encourage more women into the race, be clear about the route. If it's, you know, a set route, be clear about it, use proper language, yeah. don't, you know, dial it up or dial it down, yeah. <laughs> be actual, like literal, like about what people can expect because I think having that knowledge and sometimes you just can't account for sometimes there is no research to be had yeah. on it but personal knowledge and race organizers should have that I would imagine about the routes that they are planning yeah, yeah I agree completely I think it's where is within their control they should they can be doing more I think to be accommodative without sacrificing, mm -hmm. you know, the spirit of the race and it being unsupported. But if they want more women in these races, if they want, you know, more diversity in these races, in whatever form it takes, they need to realize that, you know, they need to be a little bit more accommodative, I think sometimes, and maybe a bit more forthcoming with information. And it might then encourage more people to participate. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I just would have liked to have wider tires <laughs> like just now and like i'm like no this is not rideable like this is mountain bike terrain what, what is what happening tires did here? you ride like, on is this gravel what's gravel 40 millimeter okay. yeah okay. what about That's you brave. on the tcr what did you uh, have i was on 37s okay yeah, yeah. did you find that adequate yeah. like on the gravel sections yeah, that was or yeah. i mean when i got to the gravel sections dawn i didn't care if i lived or died so i just sent it down like i was like i don't <laughs> if i get injured i don't have to do this anymore <laughs> so like my tire size was We're fine now. yeah <laughs> yeah i would have done it on road slicks like i sounds didn't like care the <laughs> this sounds like the first time i went downhill mountain biking in the middle of a breakup i don't care what happens <laughs> like <laughs> Now, now that I've gone mountain biking again in the same, like, in Morzine, the same place, I'm like, oh, my God, I care. Yeah. I'm so happy I'm alive. <laughs> I live to, to tell that. I want to talk through inclusivity in cycling because I think you're 36, correct? If you don't mind me sharing Shout it out to the world. Yeah. It's fine. I started... <laughs> I mean, I'll say people can do the math. I'm not going to explain. I mean, if anyone wants to research, know how old I am, they just Google a few <laughs> articles and they can find how old I am. But I started cycling, you know, in earnest when I was 37 and I had my first race when I was 38. How did you find the entry into cycling? Because this is my personal perspective. I feel like going, if I had entered into the regular cycling community, you know, like the guys and gals who go out in a Peloton every weekend and really, really fast. I don't know that I would have gone into ultra cycling because I think I would have been so intimidated 
or just afraid of it for a number of reasons. But I found the wild and woolly people <laughs> world of ultra cycling really, really accepting. Whereas I still think there's a bit of a divide between, you know, I always make fun of some of my roadie friends. I'm like, oh, you're a roadie, like, oh, support car. <laughs> I don't understand these terms. I'm like, safety car? What's that? (laughs) Do you think like cycling's got a bit of an image problem in terms of like welcoming people in? Yeah. I mean, I I hated cycling, full disclosure, when I first started training for TCR. Mm -hmm. I think those are strong words. It's how I it's how I felt. I think a lot of the social media representation of the sport is very elitist. I think a lot of the brands are very elitist. Um, and you see the same kind of bodies doing the sport, mm-hmm. wearing the same clothes, wearing the same 100-pound mesh base layer. It's like, how can somebody who just bought their first bike even fathom entering into that type of world? And mm-hmm. it's, again, predominantly male-dominated. And it was mm-hmm. just not something I personally identified with coming from, like, a lower middle class kind of socioeconomic background, a female being a a stronger physique, so not necessarily incredibly thin. So I really struggled with it. I didn't felt like I belonged and therefore I did most of my riding indoors by myself. Mm. Yeah. I think things are hopefully changing. Like as more conversations are being had, there's more people just being out there and enjoying themselves on bikes, irrespective. And I think what I love about the ultra world is like, if you show up to the race on the worst bike, like there is, you're the coolest person. That's the thing. (laughs) Like you are the hero. (laughs) And that's why I was so grateful. I think as I began meeting people when we went to Belgium for TCR, the more and more I saw, I was like, this isn't like the images that I'm seeing of cycling on social media. This isn't like the Mm. local, you know, chain gang that goes out that like terrifies everyone on the road. Like this is actually a really cool community. And I would love for that ethos, I think, to be expanded out wider to other elements of, of the sport, because I just think it's so inclusive and it would encourage so many people to try new things and try the sport. I think as gravel is kind of continuing to grow, and I mean, I just bought a mountain bike, and I think that scene's a little different. Like, I do like road cycling. I actually want a road bike. I don't really have one. I've got a cyclocross bike that's kind of out of commission at the moment, but I would love to have a road bike just to kind of, yeah, ride up those (laughs) mountains in France. (laughs) What I would like to see happen is that more people are aware that there's many different types of cycling. So from, you know, mountain biking to gravel to bikepacking to, um, to ultras and everything in between. That's the thing. And I think we just need to be really, of course, we need to celebrate excellence. But I feel especially in cycling, we need to celebrate mediocrity. Like I jumped in the transcontinental and like, I'm (laughs) arguably awful at hill climbing. Like if you ever want a quote, like go talk to John, like it's horrific how bad I am. And I just start crying. And I wanted to document that on my social media because I feel like so much of the sport is like being stoic and being, you know, strong and powerful and fast. And like, I wasn't any of that, but I was having, a, I mean, I was having an awful time, but a great time. <laughs> and I think we need to kind of do more to make so, it accessible and break it, break it down for people. I love that. We should celebrate mediocrity. <laughs> I, I agree. Cause I'm like, celebrate me. <laughs> <laughs> like we're here doing it. Come on. <laughs> Yeah. 
No, but I have to, I, I mean, the best stories are in the back of the pack is what I think, you know, or in the middle and the back. Like, oh, yeah. And yeah, I, there's so much and fun And when stuff. you look at the diversity yeah. of people and backgrounds and abilities that can actually finish a race like the transcontinental, it's really inspiring and it's really remarkable. And it shows mm. that fitness only gets you partway there. You know, a lot of these people who can finish yeah, the transcontinental it's... and these other huge races, like they don't have your 43 beats a minute resting heart rate, like peak fitness, but they have such mental strength and they have been riding bikes their entire life and they will outlast anyone. And it's like the most yeah. inspiring thing. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I yeah, just looking back on all of the races that I've done, which is not a lot, like four, you know, and they're not that I mean, it's long more than in, I've done in, so. in the grand scheme of ultra cycling. Well, you've, I think you've done the same distance I've done though, but it's just been one race. <laughs> but just the people, the characters that I've met, you know, along the way have been, it's been so much fun and just yeah. such characters and such amazing stories. So speaking about ultra cycling races, what is next for you? I know, but do, 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 do the grand reveal for everyone. Yeah, uh, because I haven't learned my lesson yet. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing the race against Rwanda in February 2024, and I am proud to announce Ooh. that John Sowler has taken the bait and he is racing pairs with me again. <laughs> so I we're love making it. a comeback, and hopefully this time we will finish the race. <laughs> yeah, no, you will, you will. And it is, like, despite me not finishing, Rwanda is amazing, and... I think with your level of planning and detail <laughs> into things, which I just don't, it's just not in my DNA to do that. Or it is in my DNA, but it's like not the dominant yeah. gene, obviously. <laughs> I think you'll be fine. Are you excited? What are you most looking forward uh, to? Finishing it? No. Um, I think uh, seeing the country, to be honest, um, even mm. if it's through tears, that's okay. I think it'll be what I'm excited about. I'm using it for practice. Um, because I'm bad at cycling mm -hmm. and heat. Ooh, there's something else. <laughs> I'm bad at hill climbing and I'm bad at gravel. And those are like the three tenets of race around Rwanda. So I'm looking mm. forward to getting some really good practice in. Yeah, it's actually, I didn't find it, but I mean, I live here, yeah. so like I'm used to heat, but I thought it was more humid than anything okay. because you're at elevation. It wasn't necessarily super high, okay. but climbing yes there's a lot of climbing but it's kind of it's hilly so it's kind of in and out and then yeah there is a yeah lot of gravel. yeah <laughs> a lot <laughs> of varying quality can't wait. can't wait yeah i'll say that it's been so nice to chat with you about everything and just hear your story it every time i hear like every time i speak to an ultra run i'm like oh running and I'm like oh maybe I'll do another ultra race but I think I need to stick with my mountain biking at the moment but it's been fantastic to hear about your TCR journey and I'm really excited to follow you in race around Rwanda is there any last thoughts or anything we didn't cover that you want people to know about you or ultra cycling or I don't think so no I would just I, I would say that my advice if you're listening to this if you're interested in doing an ultra race do not be intimidated you can absolutely do it. The distances may seem phenomenal and, you know, impossible at first glance. There are people from all walks of life doing this thing all the time. So you are capable. Do not talk yourself out of it. Just commit to it and do your training and you could absolutely pull it off is the final thing I would like to say. 
Amazing. And do your research. Do your research. <laughs> and don't break your wrists. 300 don't kilometers like from me. the finish line. <laughs> don't, yeah, and don't break your wrists. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. It was wonderful. I can't wait to release yeah, it. No problem, Dawn. It was a pleasure. And I hope you have a good evening. If you like this episode, why not give us a little kudos? Five stars only, wherever you're listening to this podcast. And remember, sharing is caring. Thank you for listening.